Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.poit.com. Net Rocks, episode 1270, with guest Greg McKeechee. Recorded Friday, March 11th, 2016. What's up? It's .NET Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd bring back that old Budweiser commercial because it's been nice. too long. A little Super Bowl in .NET. Okay. Yeah. How are you, man? I'm, I'm good. I've been having a good time, you know, plunking away at the thing with the stuff. Good. Same here. Trying to get my house rebuilt, you know. Yep. I, you know, we'll have a geek out soon about DC lighting because I'm putting it in the basement. Yes, it'll be an experienced show. Yes. Yeah. And let me tell you what it actually took to put it in. But the wiring is going in right now and uh, found lights that the wife loves. And you know how creative and stylish she is. So it was not easy. But mm. when we found we found a set of fixtures she just went crazy for. So it's going to be great. That's awesome. Well, let's just roll the music for Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, of course, we have this scheme now. You can go to 1270, that's the show number, 1270.pwop.me, and that brings you to the Bootstrap Magic Editor. Oh. That's right, Richard. You can now create your own Bootstrap theme using Bootstrap (laughs) online. (laughs) I love it. That's really cool. Yeah, it's great. It's Bootstrap 3 made with AngularJS. There you go. So, you know, when you're done using it, you can view source and see what the heck they're doing. Uh, so interesting. Because when you first fire this up, you go directly to the editor, you get the white screen effect. But you don't even realize. He's like, did I go to a page here? It's like, oh, okay. Just at the top, there yeah. is, uh, you know, you are actually on a page. That is really interesting. That's pretty neat. I love it. And uh, Dave Bush sent that to me. So thanks, Dave. Nice. Well done, Dave. Good stuff. I've been uh, in... Vanilla JS CSS HTML mode here for a couple of weeks, and uh, he just sent me some really neat resources. Cool. Anyway, who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 1149, the one we did uh, quite a while ago, actually. We talked about web apps using TypeScript uh, with Steve mm-hmm. Ognabene. And this particular yep. comment comes to us from uh, a fellow named Steven, and, and I'd appreciate that uh, that Steve actually responded to him. He actually said, you know, hello, f- fellow Stephen with a PH. But this Stephen says, I love the idea of TypeScript, but I'm fairly new to JavaScript coming from C Sharp, and I need examples. I see it kind of like being a VB developer to C Sharp world. If you are expert in both, then it's easy to translate any code snippets that you need to use. But if you know only one, you are better off with the one that with the most examples, with the most blog posts, the most Stack Overflow answers, and so on, right? So, you know, if you're a VB developer to C-sharp world, you keep finding C-sharp examples, so that's sort of the skill you need. Right. A same problem with TypeScript is all your examples are in JavaScript. 
We are starting our conversion to JavaScript with the web using Rob Eisenberg's Aurelia. Mm-hmm. While it fully supports TypeScript, most of the examples for Aurelia are in plain old JavaScript. So while I love the idea of TypeScript, it just requires too much knowledge of JavaScript for my team. And so for now, we're going to stick with JavaScript. Okay. Yeah, totally reasonable. In some ways, I feel like, you know, the the strength of TypeScript comes with more mature projects. We've seen this come up over and over again, that as you get further down the path of maintaining JavaScript, TypeScript's advantages start to really show significantly. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, Stephen, I I can understand you're hesitating on TypeScript right now, but it might come back to haunt you later as you try and make more and more sustainable projects. But that's okay, because they mix just fine. Sure do. And... A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our social medias because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. Absolutely. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet anytime. We put them on top of our cheeseburgers. Craig McKeechee is a Pluralsight author and a trainer specializing in JavaScript libraries and frameworks. He has been a software developer for over 15 years as of this recording and has earned the Microsoft Certified Solutions Developer Certification, MCSD, for three generations of Microsoft technology. Craig is the author of the JavaScript Framework Guide, AngularJS, Backbone, and Ember, and he blogs at funnyant.com, funny A-N-T, not your aunt. Craig lives in Ohio <laughs> with his wife and two boys. Welcome back, Craig. Thanks, guys. Great to be on the show again. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we've talked payment systems last time, but right. this is a, you're going a totally different direction now. Yeah, I mean, it's still JavaScript-y, right? But yes, totally different direction. Yeah. I really, you know, I really was enamored by this, this uh, concept of compiling your JavaScript. So I, I dug into this. And, you know, Babel or Babel, however you pronounce it, seems like the perfect name for a transpiler because, you know, the Babelfish, the the universal translator, it's, it's kind of a nice reference there. Exactly, exactly. Although I heard, I think it's from the Tower of Babel. Right. Um, I heard it at the creator of the project, uh, Sebastian and McKenzie, interviewed elsewhere, and uh, he said it was... Um, you know, after the Tower of Babel, and it is Babel and not Babel, although mm-hmm. many developers I know still say Babel. Okay. Oh, a dual meaning there, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> right. Well, I'm pretty sure the Babelfish came from the Tower of Babel. Right. Or Babel. Babel. And I'm pretty sure you can't copyright the Tower of Babel, but you might be able to copyright the Babelfish. <laughs> so better to reference something you can't copyright. <laughs> well, anyway, what's it all about? It's a transpiler. And um, what's what's different about this from other transpilers? I think that, you know, what really, why people, um, you know, it was originally called six to five. I should say that first in case people heard of six to five, but haven't heard of Babel. Um, I think what differentiated it at first, it felt like was the readability of the source code. Mm. Um, when the ECMAScript 2015 gets translated to uh, ECMAScript 5, it's very readable. It's as if you wrote it yourself. And nice. I think that's why a lot of people liked it. Ah, So it's not only... Uh, a good transpiler, but the, what it puts out is readable, which is, I like readability in a, in a language. That's a nice feature. Yes. And I think, you know, other, uh, transpilers like Tracer, um, from Google seems to be the other, you know, very popular one or the first one. And it seems like when you transpile it, it uses a, a runtime. Um, you know, for a reason, the, the runtime kind of keeps you from polluting the global namespace. But Babel, by default, uh, does not use that. So it just feels 
um, a little more like I'm not doing something foreign here. I can read the the code that's being generated. Can you plug it into TypeScript? And for that matter, does I mean TypeScript's a transpiler as well? But will TypeScript write Babel that writes JavaScript, <laughs> or is it the other way around? It's crazy. It's a crazy world we live in now. I have heard. Um, rumors that uh, Jonathan Turner, the head of the TypeScript project, and Sebastian McKenzie, the head of the Babel project, um, have talked a lot. And I noticed that um, recently, Babel has changed in Babel 6. They kind of redid their architecture. We can go into this more lately, but they have sort of a plug-in architecture so that, you know, you can do all kinds of different things with different plugins kind of like the jQuery model. Yeah. So I think it's a you know it's a possibility because really people often say, you know, TypeScript versus um Babel and I think the real issue is is it TypeScript or ECMAScript 2015. Um and Babel's really a compiler and I think that's yeah. the difference, you know, TypeScript's a language. And that being said, John Turner just joined Mozilla like a week ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess uh, that that relationship, that might not continue quite like I thought. Yes. Obviously, we can't predict the future. You know, everybody's open source these days. We're all friendly. This is not the end of the world either, but it is kind of an interesting timing that all these things have happened around the same time. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very... You know, when I was working on this uh, course for Pluralsight on Babel and getting really deep into it, you know, you can't help but not notice the 10,000-pound gorilla in the room, which is AngularJS backing TypeScript. Right. And right. clearly lots of Microsoft developers um, appreciating TypeScript because of their background and because it comes out of, of Microsoft. Um, you know, so, so it, is, it is a concern, but I think... What I'm hoping is there's a need for more of a general purpose compiler in general. Mm. And perhaps, um, you know, it's quite a task to keep up uh, the, you know, if the output of your project is really a language, the transpiler might not be, you might not want that to be the focus of your development team's time and so forth. So I do think there's room for collaboration, but obviously uh, none of us can predict the future. yeah, I see no reason why TypeScript wouldn't start outputting ES6. I, I'm not sure I follow you there, actually. Well, just, I mean, the whole, the whole point of TypeScript is bringing in this sort of static typing and so forth. But right now, when you, you know, you compile your TypeScript and it does all its validation, it spits out ES5 at the end. Why not spit out ES6? And I kind of see your point, but I think it's a little early for that. Yeah. If you look at like browser compatibility, I always, uh, I think a lot of people know about this, but there's a Kangex compatibility table for ECMAScript uh, that's out there. We can throw a link in the show notes. Uh, It's a great resource for looking at, you know, basically down the left hand side is all the language features of, you know, ECMAScript 5 or in ECMAScript 6 and ECMAScript 7, depending on, you know, which tab of the, the interface you're on. And across the top is a list of all the browsers um, and runtimes that that code might run in. And it's, it's very interesting to look at that and understand where the gaps are. But uh, I definitely um, see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I also could see like this is a staged thing then too, right? Maybe it starts putting out ES6 and then you use Babel to go down to five from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, when I've heard people from the Babel team talk, I've heard them mention that, hey, you know, you don't, you might still need to support some 
mobile browser that's only got 1% of the market or something, but you really want to use ECMAScript six or seven features, you know, having that feeling that you've got that compilation step in between keeping you compiled down to a lowest common denominator yeah. really makes you feel more confident in using those future language features without concern. Well, that's what compilers have always been about, right? We got tired of writing machine code. And so we used, quote, higher level languages that compiled back down to the machine code. It's This is not a bizarre concept. So what's the setup like for in the installation like for Babel? Is it pretty straight ahead? And where does it go? Where What uh, platforms do you support? Yeah, the setup's pretty straightforward, although things did change and and people's cheese were moved a little bit when Babel went to version 6. They changed some things around. Um, it's important to kind of understand all the NPM packages that make up Babel. Um, first, there's Babel Core, which is just what it sounds like. It's the core library code that makes up Babel. Yeah. In general, until you get into advanced scenarios like writing your own library that uses Babel Core as a dependency, you don't even really need to install this package directly. Uh, the Babel hyphen CLI, standing for the command line interface, allows you to run Babel from the command line. This is what you'd install first, and you might guess includes the Babel core as a dependency. When you start to transpile code, you'll get output, but unless you have a plugin for a specific language feature, your source code will not be altered. Basically, it'll just you know go through the pipe and come out the other side and look the same, nice. and you'll be a little puzzled at first as to what happened. Well, this is a switch. It's kind of more like the the tack that, uh, you know, it's node-like in its um, approach, uh, the way Babel is, is architected now, where, you know, you install the minimum amount of stuff and then you add modules as you go. So, for example, there's a plugin named Babel Plugin Transform ES2015 Arrow Functions. That was a mouthful. Uh, so when you install that, you might guess that you it adds that language feature that I just mentioned. And the idea of opting in to these specific granular language features is new to Babel 6. And it's also, you know, the way .NET Core is heading, right? They're kind of copying off that only install the bits you need and opt in. Right. Which, is, I mean, it, the problem here is if you're going to keep richening up ECMAScript, which is clearly what's happening, not everybody needs everything. This is the same place that the .NET framework got to. Right. And you might, you know, just want some particular language features that you really want, but you don't want to take a chance on some of those edgy features that are in the next version of JavaScript. Um, right. And you can make those choices really specifically. Maybe you only want one feature um, that you really, really want from the next version of JavaScript, uh, you know, used to be called ECMAScript 7, but I hear it now starting to be referred to as ECMAScript uh, next, and then I'm sure yeah. they'll call it by the year that it's released. I'm guessing. Yeah, that we've yeah we've heard people. I think you've said this too. ECMAScript 2015. Yeah, it's it's so confusing. So to clear that up a little bit, I think most people know this now. But you know, ECMAScript it was originally called ECMAScript six, right? Yeah. Or actually JS Next, right? Yeah, no, yeah. we got to go back further than that. It was Harmony, then oh, wow. JS <laughs> Next, <laughs> and then. Uh, you know, ECMAScript 6, and now finally it landed as ECMAScript 2015. All those things I just mentioned are the exact same thing. So if you're confused, right. uh, you're rightfully so. so. And what I appreciate about it calling it ECMAScript 2015 is it's done. It's from last year, mm -hmm. right? 
it's we're still waiting for browsers to implement it. And by the way, I I have now covered three quarters of my gigantic screen with the compatibility table. <laughs> I, I blame you because you know just the analysis of all of these features that are in browsers today. And then looking at how well the compiler slash polyfills are dealing with it, how well the browsers are dealing with it, and how well Node's dealing with it, it's really quite interesting, you know, for a for a data geek like me, anyway. Yeah, that is a a great great uh, resource. And if you, what's really interesting when you look at the the GitHub repo behind it is he's essentially just running code in all those browsers to you know get the tests uh, going. And, and prove that something passes or doesn't pass in a browser, which is pretty slick. And if we're talking about ECMAScript 6, ECMAScript 2015, this is finished now, you know, agreed to now. So the, the, given that the tests are fully up to date, this should be completely valid. This is where the browsers are at. And while A, I'm in awe of how good Babel is with a 70% coverage of, of uh, 2015 features, just look at the train wreck that is the mobile browser. Like, holy right. man. Yeah, right. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. So Babel works well with React. Works well with a lot of tools, but you specifically have some React stuff in here? Yeah, I think that it's really where Babel gained its popularity was in the React community because they sort of um, adopted it as the default way of of programming because everybody really wanted to evolve to the next you know version of ECMAScript and start using those new language features. Um, some of the seed projects and so forth and the boilerplates that are out there really just kind of assume that you're going to write in future JavaScript when you're coding in React and and then have it transpiled down to ECMAScript 5. And this is the same tack that Angular 2 is taking. They just happen to be targeting TypeScript instead of ECMAScript 2015. And they do support ECMAScript 2015, as most people know. Awesome. And what about some of the other tools in your uh, your your archives, your your tool belt here? Bundlers and package managers. And is I mean, it's just JavaScript at the end of the day. But is there are there any integrations that are sort of critical? Yeah, I think, you know, almost any of the tools, the front end tools, build tools and other tools that you think of in the JavaScript landscape, which we all know there's an explosion of them, um, do have an integration with Babel. And I think that's part of the success of the project. They're very good with the integrations and the documentations about those integrations. Um, let me be a, a little more specific. You know, I personally get kind of overwhelmed by all the front end tools and I try to kind of organize them in my mind. And it sounds like, you know, soup after a while, people all joke about the grunts and the gulps of the world. But I think putting them in some categories is is helpful for me. And then talking about how Babel, you know, can integrate with those things yeah. as a second point. Um, I think about, you know, grunt, gulp, and now the new kid on the block, NPM scripts are all build tools and build automation tools. So think of it as MS build for JavaScript, right? And you may have been surprised to hear NPM scripts there, but I think what a lot of people are finding is that a low friction way to write something closer to a batch file is just to write something in your NPM's package.json file in the script section uh, to do some build automation. And I can send a link through on how to use NPM as a build tool um, that I personally kind of latched onto, and I think a lot of people in the JavaScript community are, and sort of reconsidering the complexity of the grunts and the gulps of the world and thinking, can we make this simpler? 
Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, you're already using NPM. Why not just, you know, use it as, as a scriptable tool to uh, to make it part of your build? Yeah, and one of the nice advantages of it that draws people in is, you know, it's not perfect. It's not without its warts. But the fact that it's aware of your node modules bin directory in your local project. So it mm-hmm. will pull the correct version of whatever you have without you giving a full path to it. It'll just assume that it should look in the local project that you're in. And so that makes the scripts a lot more terse and clean and eliminates the need for a lot of plugins. You know, I still don't have node reflexes. Whenever I look uh-huh. at stuff like this, I'm thinking about how I'm going to fix problems with browser renderings. But getting all this working for a back-end service with no UI on it in the form of Node, of course, you want a higher-level language. You want something more manageable. You want it as terse as possible. And you've got such good control over the runtime, it shouldn't be that big a deal. Unless you want somebody else to run that software, of course. You know, if, you, if you're actually making an open source node project and you've used a nice high level language, I mean, this is where you're going to get punished, right? If somebody else wants to run it in some other way, it's just not going to work for them. Right, right. That makes sense. I didn't really uh, finish my front end tool spiel here, but I yeah. think the, the other set of tools that people kind of get um, confused about, the other cat next category I have on my list is module bundlers or loaders. I think uh, module bundler seems to be the more common term. This mm-hmm. is Browserify, uh, Webpack to some extent, although Webpack kind of uh, crosses a little bit into that first category of build tool and System.js. So these are things that are basically allowing you to have something closer to um, import statements or using statements in C Sharp or VB.net in the JavaScript world and having modularity to your code. Nice. And which one do you prefer? Because you've given us a list. Yeah, I think right now I like Webpack a lot. I think Browserify was sort of the first uh, generation of those things. I think a lot of people are still using that in production. I'm still coming up to speed personally on System.js and JSPM. Their goals are a little bit more... They're trying to tackle a little bit more because System.js works with JSPM, which is its own package manager that kind of wraps NPM. So it's a complicated conversation, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around the JSPM System.js set of tooling. I think the one thing that's uh, you know kind of a strike against them in my mind is all the examples I see are doing the transpilation in the browser. Now, I think this is possible. I just haven't looked into it very hard with System.js and JSPM to move that transpilation into a build step on the server and then deploy the ECMAScript 5 code. But a lot of the examples I see seem to have use it the other way where they're transpiling in the user's browser on the fly the code. Hmm. And this just seems like a bad idea to me. Seems bad to me too, yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Boy, you know it. It's time to grip, smack, shankadoodle, grism, spurly. Oh, shit. <laughs> Shall I transpile that for you? <laughs> Actually, I think it's funnier that way. <laughs> you, really, you really don't want to see what that generated. Oh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it have ever used it themselves? Well, Telerik's been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects, and that means they know what it takes to build real-world applications. 
And Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, too, having shed some of their own. No more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET, desktop, mobile, and web development. Try it today at Telerik.com slash DevCraft. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Thomas J. Rogers. Oh, congratulations, Thomas. From uh, Michigan, I believe. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, up there with Bill Wagner, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, he's moved to Maine, hasn't he? Well, he hasn't moved, moved yet, but yes, he has a place in Maine. He, we're going to be neighbors soon. That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, Thomas, congratulations. Uh, you just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection, a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. Craig, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, sir, what would you buy? I did actually prepare for this a little better compared to the last time I was on the show. <laughs> um my wife and I are working on finishing the basement here, and we've got some boys that are about to hit their teenage years in a few years. So I want to have something to keep the the neighborhood kids over here at our house. So I'm thinking about maybe doing one of those cabinet arcade classic machines. Um, ah, nice. right. Right. I know. I remember Scott Hanselman built one quite a few years ago himself. I don't think I want to take that on. So I've I've got a few I've got my eye on trying to figure out what the best one out there is. Cool. Yeah, if you had five grand to spend on them, there's there's a few companies making complete solutions. You know, most of the stuff you find on the web is about building your own, but I got stuff to do. Do you still use MAME, the multi-arcade machine emulator, Craig? You know, I haven't. I'm not aware of this. I oh. think I need to be... Oh my God, yes, you have to. If you like the old arcade games, basically... You you can run the ROMs right out of the games in this emulator, and there's all sorts of them out there. I think there was some question as a uh, as to the legality of it, you know. But you right. can. There are certainly places where you can download and find them and play all the games you used to know and love. And they map the buttons to keyboard, you know, keys and all that stuff. Great fun. And for the most part, these console systems, like the X-Arcade one, they, it's MAME under the hood, but they're putting it in a real video game cabinet right. with the right controls and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's almost worth the price, right? But not quite when you look at it and think, I could build that cabinet, right? It, it sucks you in a little bit. I don't know. I, you know, stuff that just works is hard to argue with. Yeah. Like, I got stuff to do, right? So the fact that I could buy a finished product with a, you know, ready to go really really tough to be upset about well you know unless you're pinching pennies i mean you know a couple of grand for a machine versus you could get a you know a monitor and some buttons and map them to keyboards and put some put a main machine under it i don't know that's that'd be a nice weekend project for me but i bet you the feel of it just wouldn't be the same you know it doesn't give you that feel like you're in the arcade my son takes piano lessons and they have one there and uh it's fun to watch him enjoy the machine the physical yeah. nature of the machine. Right. Yeah, I guess it's all about that cabinet and, you know, the the display and the buttons. And the big and buttons the big and buttons. the big joysticks. and Yeah. 
You know, for me, it's the time to do the research to try and get stuff right. Get a big subwoofer, put it in there, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) I have a little bit of money left over, though, I think, still. So I want one of these air bonsai trees that, have you guys seen these on Kickstarter? No. So it's a bonsai tree basically floated in midair using a magnet. Right. What? Oh, that's cool. It's very cool. And I think it slowly rotates around. Yeah, because the, ba- the base has a spinning magnet in it, and you've got a little piece inside of the bonsai ball to keep it floating. And it's such a cool idea. How, how much distance is there between the bottom of the top and the next nearest surface? It's, it's not more than like an inch. Oh, well, you know, that's not as impressive. But it, 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 you know what it is? It's not, it's not the focal point of a room. It's something sitting on your desk that causes people to do a double take. I used to have a spinning globe that was sort of a levitating magnetic thing. And, uh, there were, yeah, there was about an inch, inch and a half from the top. And it, but it was just enough. You're right. The, it's the double take effect. You know, they look at the spinning globe and they think, oh, isn't that awesome? And then they're like, what? Wait, you know, head goes sideways. Is that in the air? Is that, where's the, how did? <laughs> it does have a wow effect, definitely. Yeah. It was a Kickstarter a while ago and it's, it's, it's gorgeous, really. Okay, let's jump back in here. What's the um, what's the node story with Babel? Right. So you might want to write code JavaScript on the server, right? And how does that work with Babel? You might be wondering. It's kind of confusing on the site. There's a lot of different options. But the short answer is for your production code, you really just want to use um, the Babel CLI and compile your code um, just like you do on the client. Okay. There, there's a couple other things that are nice to kind of play around with. And for demos, there's, you know, how there's a node.exe that you basically pass it a JavaScript file and it runs it. There's a Babel node.exe that will transpile the code on the fly, not nice. meant for production use, but, but does that sort of thing. And they have a Babel nodemon.exe. So it restarts node on file changes and so forth. Um, there's one other option, which is the require hook. Um, and the package for that is called Babel register. And this is what you use to um, integrate with unit tests, which we can talk about a little bit more in a minute. But essentially, you put at the top of a file, once you require it at the entry point of your application, it will automatically transpile all the files that are not node modules in your project. Mm. Now, if if you're just running your app on-prem using Node on the back end, like by default, Node uses the, the... the Google V8 engine, which I think the latest version is almost, it's like the most ES6 complete engine going. Right. You should be able to write your app in ES6 and just run it on that and not need to transpile at all. Yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, and I was thinking that too the first time I looked at it, but change okay. your uh, change your Kangx table to the next tab instead of the six tab. Right. And see what happens. Uh-oh. Right. And in summary... There's a ton of features from the next version of JavaScript that Babel's already got implemented that aren't implemented in Chrome. And I think this will continue to happen each year as the JavaScript language evolves. So it's kind of a moving target. What a cool idea that you leave Babel in place to pick up those new features and keep going down to however, however far behind V8 is. It's just a normal part of your step. Right. And I think that's the real draw of it. I mean, I could see it being around. It was really intended. You know, we talked about Tracer a little bit before. Tracer was really intended to let people kind of play with these new language features. But Babel has always been out there as 
something that you can use in production and will continue to support ECMAScript, not just ECMAScript 2015, but all the versions of the language beyond, which I think is right. great. And I feel pretty good about it because um, there was a, uh, Sebastian McKenzie, the creator of the project, was in college when he created it. When it was six to five. <laughs> when it was six to five. But he now works for Facebook and Facebook is the one who has the React framework. So you know that there's a big company basically helping support the Babel team. Right. And that company's Facebook. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Getting back a little bit to the architecture of Babel, uh, I noticed the, the, the module plugin architecture. And, um, I just wonder, you know, we're, we're all for this holy grail of components on the web that just never seem to work out so well just because of the nature of how JavaScript and HTML lay out together. But I suppose, you know, uh, I, I want to know, like, what's that like? Is HTML, CSS, JavaScript all packaged up into one blob that you can just sort of boink, pop in somewhere? And how, how exactly is that architected? Yeah, let me try to address that. I kind of wonder the same thing, you know, all the time trying to wrap my head around that problem, right? Mm. Because we know we're moving to a new HTTP spec that will make one blob not necessarily desirable in the future. You know, I've heard yeah. some past episodes you guys had about that. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. If you look at the ECMAScript 2015 spec, it's really just establishing the syntax to import and export things. It's not talking about the loading portion of that. So essentially, I think future versions of the specification might be more specific about how loading takes place. But right now, because they've sort of punted on it, the only syntax they've introduced, basically what happens is you write, you know, ECMAScript 2015 module syntax, because developers definitely need this ability to import and export libraries. And it gets compiled down to one of sort of the other, I don't want to say legacy, but they almost are now, uh, formats <laughs> like CommonJS. It was from yesterday. Everything's legacy. <laughs> but... You know, it, so Babel allows you to compile it down to AMD if you want to, down to common JS. And, and for practical purposes, for the most part, both of those tend to just deliver everything as a bundle. I think Webpack does do some code splitting um, if you use it in the process. So, it, you know, it gets to be quite a complicated answer. But I think the, the short answer is it's being punted on right now. And most people are just shipping one huge file. But I don't think they've messed it up so they can't fix it in the future. Yeah, it used to, you know, putting stuff together used to be the hard part. Now we, with HTTP2, we did a show on this a while ago. Not that big of a deal. You know, this doesn't seem like a hard problem to fix. The ECMAScript modules, once they came out, you look at the syntax and it's like, this makes perfect sense. Why didn't we have this a long time ago? But it's really just agreeing on a standard. You know, it's sort of like your code style guides at your office, right? It's it's really not important what the style guide is as much as it is that everybody follows it. That you have one. Yeah. Exactly. How about the unit test story? Well, I mean, uh, unit testing JavaScript is painful enough. <laughs> How do we do this with Babel? Right. So, you know, the, the issue comes up where you're, you're using Babel everywhere else. You know, you're using it uh, now to write your server side code, perhaps with Node. You're using it on the client, mm. with, you know, say Angular or React. 
etc and then you're like well my unit tests i can't use this language features how do i how do i do this and that require hook that we spoke of will let you transpile your unit test files on the fly and i think that's a good use of it because yeah. you know you kind of want unit tests to be fluid and compile on the fly and right. and happen and you're not worried about performance from a production standpoint which is why they suggest not using the babel register in production they right. want you to transpile it and have ecmascript 5 that's just done compiled already and and running in the browser and it just works right i mean that's what i want you to tell me it just there's no gotchas there's nothing you need to reorient your brain for Right. Well, there's um, there's a section in, for example, the Jasmine config, let's say you're using Jasmine, mm. where you just add an additional, I believe it's called helpers, and you just add an additional helper library. It's documented on the, the Babel site, and I show a demo of it in the, the Pluralsight course. But yeah, essentially, it works like you'd expect it to. I had a little problem with some of the pathing issues, but once you figure that out, um, it just works. Oh, cool. And what's nice about it, too, is... You know, at first I was, oh, now I can use arrow functions, but what else is this, you know, worth? But what's nice is you can start using those ECMAScript modules that we just spoke about. Yeah. And you can import them in your unit tests and then unit test the module you imported, which is, you know, nice. And you're using it to do unit tests on the on the back end in Node as well? Yeah. And, and the same thing applies back there. Okay, um, looking at some other things in the notes, babbljs.io is the website. There's a REPL. Okay. Yeah, tell me about the REPL. Is it just as easy as it sounds? It is. It's just sort of part of the babbljs.io site. It's a great way if you kind of want to wrap your head around, what is this thing exactly doing? How does this work? You know, this whole transpiling thing. You can go plug some code in sort of the left-hand side of an editor yeah. and the right-hand side outputs ECMAScript 2015 and you kind of see what it's doing on the fly kind of like you know back in the coffee script days when it was originally very very popular they had those online editors and typescript has a playground right now it's very much like yeah. that so it's a read evaluate print loop you know right. for for running babel that runs it through babel and i see your use of the use strict hack which uh i've run into a couple of times but we never talk about on the show this is where if, if you want to use strict mode, and you can tell us what that is, you just put this, not even a, you don't even create a variable. You just quote use space strict end quote, uh, semicolon where in, in the scope of wherever you want to be in strict mode. And, and it is a sort of a, sort of a kludge, isn't it? But tell us what strict mode is and why you need to do that. Right. Well, so just to be clear, we're talking about the output. Let's say you type some regular JavaScript or some ECMAScript 2015 on the yeah. left-hand side, yeah. and the use strict will be output on the right-hand side as output. Yeah. And that's there really because it's, a, it's an official ECMAScript 5 feature that basically puts you into a stricter mode, kind of like option strict in uh, VB.net for all you people who lived through those days. Hey, I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> option strict in vb net was basically there to say uh you need to define all your variables up front and tell me what types they are remember when that we weren't doing that it was horrifying it was you could just pull variables out of thin air what language would let you do that hmm. i can't imagine oh, javascript script <laughs> <laughs> 
And what it does is it enforces throwing um, an exception when you do that, right? Yeah. Without you declare a variable without the var keyword, for example. But there's a list of about you know twenty other things that it also fixes little gotchas in the language that it just kind of fixes for you. Right. So you know when you, especially if you're on a greenfield project or creating a new file in your project, you definitely want that statement in there to kind of keep you from shooting yourself in the foot with the JavaScript language. And there are also some code just won't run without it, right? I'm trying to think of an example of that. I do know there's, uh, you know, there's some examples. Most of the examples are in the reverse, like you can't delete a variable name. Um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There may be something, you know, more like the code won't run, but I think it's more of a, I'm going to throw more exceptions at you when you do dumb things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it is very cool to see a REPL, and I I really do appreciate that because the playground is the first place I go with any new tool, and I just, you know, start typing. Yeah, definitely. I just love that we're back to using strict again, you know, like... Mm -hmm. Because we have, it fixes bugs that so many people are working with now and want to, they don't want to fix all their pages. (laughs) So we have to call it in. Yep. Sure. Exactly. (sighs) Makes me sad. And, you know, the way I like to kind of sum up the Babel thing is I think about jQuery and how popular it was. And I think, you know, that a large part of that popularity can be attributed to enabling developers to safely use JavaScript in all browsers. Mm. You know, the reason I'm kind of excited about Babel is because it does sort of the same thing in a way. It enables developers to use new JavaScript language features across all browsers. Yeah. Yep. So that's very cool. Um, what's next in the Babel world? What can we look forward to? I think the things I've heard it, you know, the about November of last year, actually, when I started working on the course, I, I did one week of working on the course, and then they released the Babel 6 version where they changed the whole architecture of the system, as we discussed before, mm. uh, doing plugins uh-huh. and so forth. That was the that was the big leap forward, right? And I think that lays the groundwork for other types of things like, you know, basically, he's got this really nice abstract syntax tree that has a lot of knowledge about JavaScript. So things that this enables include like linters, um, you know, anything that could use the knowledge of an abstract syntax tree mm-hmm. that's available and you just, you don't have to do that work. You could just piggyback off of all the development they've done. Right. Um, you, you know, I think it's, it's up to the imagination on that side, but, you know, in particular, I think better linting tools for JavaScript might come out of this. Awesome. Craig, thanks so much for uh, for sharing this with us. It's great. And I, congratulations. I mean, I know it's not your tool, but uh, congratulations on mastering it and being able to explain it. It's good. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I encourage people to check it out. I think, too, there's definitely some overlap between this and the and the TypeScript world that mm-hmm. we're headed towards. And anything you can do to familiarize yourself with that. If you look at the setup tab in their documentation, you can see just how many, I'm just going to read some of them here, things they integrate with. Jasmine, Jest, Karma, Mocha, uh, Node, Ruby, Jade, mm. WebStorm. You know, there's all kinds of touch points, basically. Yeah. And a lot of these tools people are confused about, you know, the grunts, the gulps, and people are still confused about it. So... I think that the course is also good for people who just want to quick, quickly catch up and get their head around what all these things are, because I show Babel working with all these tools. Yeah. Good stuff, Craig. Thanks a lot for being here. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>
on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm-